You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I've had kind of this uh, theme I've noticed over the past few weeks, starting off the sermons in Job. And I would just want to say in the preface here that I'm casting myself as the bad guy in this situation because I, I don't want to make it sound like I think I'm like good for this. So I'm, I'm the bad guy here. Keep that in mind as I explain this story. Because, uh, yeah, this is the point on me being really uh, dumb and judgmental. So well, here's what I do. Here's what I've noticed is this kind of weird thing that I've seen in Twin Falls over the past couple of years. I don't know if it's always been this way or if I've just been starting to notice it, but it's, I've seen a preponderance, a lot of these jacked up trucks with the American flag on one side and the Confederate flag on the other side. It seems like it's always those two. And uh, I think I've only ever noticed like one time where it's two American flags. For some reason, it's always a jacked up truck, one American flag and one Confederate flag, you know, hanging out the back. And I've been noticing this uh, because, well, I keep track of it because I, I'm judgmental about it. See, here's where I'm the bad guy about it. I, I notice this whenever I see it because in my mind, I kind of think it's a little bit ridiculous. Now, this is, again, I'm the bad guy here. I'm not... If you, you know, are that way, that's, I'm the bad guy here, not you. Um, but I, in my mind, I go through this as kind of ridiculous that, you know, we live in Idaho. We're, you know, firmly in the northern part of the country. The South lost the Civil War like over a hundred years ago. And I, I just think it's a little bit ridiculous when I see it. And that's why my mind takes note of it when I see. And I also tend to notice, and this is again why it stands out to me, is because every time I see that, what I do is judge the driver of the truck. I make some sort of a judgment on the person driving it because I've seen this outside thing, the Confederate flag, and I make a judgment on the driver. So I come to the conclusion that uh, he, and you know, I just assume the gender, if you're into that thing, I assume the gender, it's, it's a he, and I assume, I make the judgment that he's maybe kind of ignorant, maybe a little bit racist, because I see that outward thing and I come to that judgment about it. The reason why I like making that judgment here, I gotta, I'm honest here, this is, you know, the failing of me and all of us when we make the judgment is I do it because it makes me feel enlightened and tolerant. See, when I can look down on someone for that reason, then I can look up on myself. Yeah, I'm not like that. That's why I notice it every time and why I point it out because it kind of boosts my ego a little bit every time I do it. And that's really the only time I judge someone is when it makes me feel better about myself. That's, that's the way that it works. So if I'm looking at this outward appearance thing, I look at the, the Confederate flag, come to a conclusion about the person driving the truck, and conclude that that person must be ignorant and racist, well, what I've just done is the exact thing I've judged that person for. 
right? I've looked at an outward thing, concluded something about that person. That's like racism. That's prejudice. That's what I've done. And that's where the Bible says, who are you, O man, to judge? For in what you condemn, you yourself are condemned. It's like Romans 2. And that's how it is. When we look at that, I've done the same thing that I'm condemning that person for. And so I, I said, you know, at the beginning, I'm the bad guy here, and I am. That's not right of me to make that judgment, uh, because it's just to boost my ego to cut someone else down. But I've, like I said, I'm starting a lot of these as I look at Job and think about the issues uh, and showing kind of how pathetic I am for a couple of reasons. First reason is I need to remind myself more than anybody else as I get into this stuff about Job's friends and how much they failed him. I need to remind myself I am not above Job's friends. And so when I look at these issues, I got to think I'm Job's friend a lot of the time. So I, I think about how I fail in this way to remind myself more than anyone. Like I need to preach this to myself. But the other reason why I keep thinking of these stories that show like how pathetic I am is how pervasive it is. I mean, that this I mentioned this story because as I was preparing the sermon, that was something that happened. I was literally praying about, uh, well, you know, I got the sermon coming up about judging. How can I teach that? Well, there's a truck with a Confederate flag. You know, what an idiot. <laughs> oh, okay, I got it. Uh, it just comes up all the time. I could have picked from millions of examples because I do it all the time. These things are very pervasive. And that's that's the problem we're going to see tonight. It's one of... Our favorite topics as Christians, favorite, not really, but you know, it's making that judgment. And we're going to look at Job's friends here and, and what they do as far as judging him. I mean, there's dozens of examples we could look at what we do every single day. Even when we condemn judgment. I mean, I'm going to about to do, you know, here's the judgment sermon and, and judging is bad and condemn it and all that stuff. But here's the thing. Even when I point out that, or if we're getting away from the Bible and we condemn it, we're, who are we, again, oh man, to judge? For in what we judge, we judge ourselves. And I've seen these things, you know, like, here's the pocket. It's hard. I'm, I'm getting to this point. It's hard to judge or to condemn judgment without condemning yourself. I mean, I see the things on Facebook, like, you know, the most judgmental people are the people in church and, and all that stuff. And you got the picture of the wolf dressing up like a lamb and saying, here's the people in church. But again, here's the problem is, if you've just judged them in church, aren't you the judge? Right? So it's very hard to point out judgment without ourselves becoming a judge. So what we need to get first, before we even get into Job, before we look at this issue of judgment, is let's own this problem, that we're all part of this problem of being a judge. That's the, that's the truth for everyone. And even uh, for non-Christians, if you happen to be listening, I was a non-Christian not all that long ago, and I felt that Christians had kind of this monopoly on judgment, that Christians are the judgmental hypocrites. But again, there's I'm making that judgment myself. So this is a human problem. We all judge people, and so we can own that. That's a problem of mine. That's a sin that I do. Or we can dismiss it. And we'll get into some of the excuses a little bit later on. So what I want to encourage you to do before we get into this, let's own it. We all put ourselves in that judgment seat in our own different ways. You all probably have your own pathetic stories you could share, just like mine, about how we judge people, cut people down to make ourselves feel better. So let's own that, sit in that, and challenge ourselves about what we're doing there. 
We need to do that or else we can't ask God for help. If we just dismiss it and say, it's not really that big of an issue for me, how can we ask God to help us in that? So we'll be looking at that tonight in the book of Job. We'll be at Job chapter 18, reading Job 18 and 19. And one of the problem of Job's friends is that they've been judging him all along. And the backstory here, of if you haven't heard this, is that Job was a upright, blameless, righteous man who was, uh, that was in God's sight. That's what God himself says about Job. And Satan comes and checks in with God. And God asks Satan, what have you been up to? Where have you been? Satan says, I've been going to and fro upon the earth. And God brings up Job to Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job that there's nobody like him? We need to remember that all the time when we're looking at Job, because his friends are trying to figure out what is wrong with Job. But we know from God's perspective, there wasn't. This stuff is happening to him for the exact purpose that there wasn't. God told Satan, have you considered my servant Job that he's upright and blameless? And Satan accuses Job and says, he's only that way because you've given him everything. Job was very rich, had a lot of kids, a lot of possessions. Satan tells God, if you take that away, he will curse you to your face. God gives Satan permission to do that. And we've got to remember that part. God gave Satan permission to do it. And so Satan kills Job's kids. He destroys his house, kills all of his livestock, everything he's worked for. Job does not curse God to his face like Satan said he would. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So then God is bragging on Job to Satan again and tells him, Job didn't do what you said he would do. And Satan again accuses. That's because he still has his health. Take away his health, he'll curse you to your face. So God gives Satan permission to do that. Take away his health. So Satan does. He's covered in boils. And his wife tells him, curse God and die. Job says, no, I will not do that. We can't accept good from God unless we also accept bad. And he never cursed God with wrongdoing like Satan said he would. So that's important to understand. When we look at Job's friends and what they say, they come to a lot of judgments. They've been doing this the whole time. So after all that happens, Job loses everything. He's in like the depths of despair. And we... That's okay. He's been through a lot. He had 10 kids and they all died. He's lost everything he's worked for in his life. And his friends show up to try to help. And they help him for about three verses. And then they start pointing the finger at him and spend about 20 chapters pointing the finger at him. So this idea of judgment has already been coming up a lot. But in these two chapters specifically, Job is going to call them out on it. He's going to call them out on their judgment. And that's why they get so frustrated. We'll get into that. His friends quit helping him after just a couple verses because they're getting frustrated with Job that he doesn't just accept their nonsense answers of here's what God must be doing. He doesn't buy it. And so they start getting very frustrated and they point the finger at him in judgment. So we're going to look at all that tonight about judgment. Bildad, Job's friend, is the judge. We've all been the judge. And then we'll see how Job talks about being judge. And we've all been judged. So we're all... We're all on both sides of this. So again, let's own it. And what we'll see here is that because judging is sinful and wrong, we need to repent of being judges. So we'll start tonight again at Job chapter 18, dealing with this issue of being a judge. And we get uh, Bildad here. So the context from Job 17, see, the conversation is always the friend, and then Job responds, doesn't really buy what the friend just told him. The last thing Job said 
was his hope is done. He has no hope. He said, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? So he talked about that last week, that Job has no hope left. And so now Bildad responds. And he responds with being the judge for Job. So chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhai answered and said, How long till you put an end to words? Gain understanding, and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? So as the judge here, Bildad judging Job, he doesn't help. And so there's one part of being the judge. It doesn't help to be the judge. And look what he tells him. And this is a guy, again, Job, think of what he's been through. And like I said, the, the friends gave up after about three verses. And all, they don't even attempt to help here. Bildad tells him, how long will till you put an end to words? Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. Job, just shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You should have hope. You should listen to us. I'm done with you. There's, there's nothing that I can say. And what he's frustrated about, like I said, is Job isn't accepting their little generic answers, their pat answers of, well, if you just figure out what's wrong with you and turn back to God, he's going to bless you like he's never blessed you before. And we know from the perspective that that is not true. God is not doing this so that Job will turn back to him and give him all these blessings because that's not how it is. It's not this pot at the end of the rainbow. And Job doesn't buy that from them. And so he's very frustrated and he's not helping. And then in verse 3, he turns it around on Job. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? See, Bildad as the judge has done what we as judges do. We make it about us. We turn it around and we make it about us and how great we are. He said, why, why do you think I'm so stupid, Job? Why don't you just listen to me? I mean, just like me. It's not that I'm judging the person with the Confederate flag. It's that I'm making it about me and how great I am. See, there's the two sides to judgment. It's cutting down the person and then it's building ourselves up, turning it around back onto ourselves. That's exactly what Bildad does. And then verse 4, You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or shall the rock be removed from its place? Just listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. All your crying and whining isn't going to help anything. So this is not helpful. For someone whose ten kids have just died, Job, just listen to me. Just accept what I'm saying. Why do you think I'm so dumb? That's not helpful. Judging will very rarely help someone. So he continues. And here's the next thing that we do as judges. We look at the person. We look at what's happening and then come to conclusions about that person. That's what he does now in verses 5 through 7. The light of the wicked indeed goes out and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp beside him is put out. The steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. Here's what he's doing. It's the subtle thing that we do as judges. He's looking at what's happening to Job and coming to conclusions about him, but it's very subtle. He tells him all these things that happen to wicked people. He says, 
The light of wicked people goes out. The flame of wicked people, uh, their fire doesn't shine. There's no light in their tent. Their lamp is put out. Their strength is shortened. All that stuff is happening to Job. So that's, that's what he's getting at. Job, has your light gone out? Yeah, it has. You must be a wicked person. Has the flame of your fire stopped shining? Uh, yes, it has. Job, you must be a wicked person. Is the light dark in your tent? Yeah, it has. You must be a wicked person. He's looking at this stuff happening, his situations of circumstances, and saying that's a reflection on who Job is as a person. This is what judges do. Is someone's life falling apart? They must be wicked. They must have done something wrong. Is someone's kid screaming in a store? Their parents must not discipline them. I'm glad my kids are so good. Does someone have a Confederate flag out the back of their truck? They must be a racist. Does someone say swear words? They must not be as sanctified as I am. I mean, it's, again, this very pervasive thing, and I said all those because those are all judgments I've made. Looking at what someone is doing, coming to a conclusion about that person. It's exactly what Bildad is doing in his own sneaky kind of way. Plainly put, we gotta, again, we gotta own this or we're not gonna get anywhere. God hates judging. See, Proverbs 6, it says, There are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. First one, a proud look. Then there's six other ones, but the first one is a proud look. Looking at someone, thinking you're better, coming to a conclusion about who they are as a person, because I don't do that. It clearly says God hates that. There's no way around it. James 4, James 4.12, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? You're very clear. It's not our law. It's God's law. Who are we to judge someone else? Romans 14.4, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. See, that's a beautiful one about us being judged. See, it's not our business to judge someone else's servant. It's to his own master he stands or falls. But it says beautifully, God's going to make him stand. We'll talk about God being the judge at the end here. But God will make that person to stand. They're not accountable to you unless they've said that. And it, We'll get into the excuses part in a minute. That's clear. I think the point's clear. God hates a proud look. They're not accountable to us. We can't look at people and come to conclusions about who they are based on the things that we see. Because then what they do is, well, let's go back here. Verse 8, Bildad starts assigning blame to Job. Starts pointing out things wrong, saying this must be the cause of it. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. He's telling Job, this is your own fault that you've walked into this. There's a trap set for you, and this is your fault. You've sinned, you've done something wrong, you walked into this, it's your mess. It's your fault. It's assigning that blame. But remembering the beginning of the book, we have God's perspective. That was not at all the case. God did not say, Job was doing something wrong, i got to punish him so he figures it out. It's the exact opposite reason. So we can't point the finger like that. We don't know. 
See, Job, his case here, when we look at what Job says in this, his argument essentially is this, God is breaking me down. God is doing this to me. I acknowledge that. But I want to know why. I want to plead my case to God, and I want Him to tell me why He's doing this to me. But what Bildad says, I've got to figure it out, Job. I know exactly why God is doing this to you. You've walked into the trap you set for yourself. This is your own fault. That's what judges do. Assign blame. Point fingers. And we do this. You know, this is, we got to own this problem. We do this because we love to. We love to assign blame. Because we all feel guilt. We all feel guilty because we know we're guilty. I know I'm a judge. I know I've sinned. I know I've contributed to all the evil going on in the world. I know that's partly my fault. And in a fleshly way, in a sinful way, I don't think there's any better way of feeling better about that and pointing out how other people are worse than me. That's not right, but that's the natural sinful way to deal with that. So we all assign blame. And let, let's own that. From every situation we get in, I mean, it, people get into these stupid arguments even about like Harambi, the monkey, for some reason. Like whose fault was it? Was it the, the monkeys, the kid that fell into the thing? I mean, this was a few months ago. And everyone wants to point the finger. School shootings. Is it the media? Is it the parents? We all want to point the finger in, in those big situations in people's lives that makes us feel better. It absolves us from guilt. That's not our place to assign blame. And then finally, we'll finish the chapter here about from the judge's perspective. So not only do judges look at what's happening and come to conclusions about that person, we also come to conclusions about that person's relationship with God. That's what Bildad does next. Verse 11. Terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent, and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below, and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name among the renowned. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He is neither son nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Those in the west are astonished at his day, as those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. See, he continues with this list of things. Here's what happens to wicked people. This is happening to you, Job. Connect the dots. You're a wicked person. Then he comes to this conclusion. This is the place of him who does not know God. This is happening to you. There must be a problem in your relationship with God, which is an easy assumption to make, except we got that first part of Job, again, where that's not what is going on here. This is where we as Christians have failed so often. So rather than helping someone, you say, oh, they don't know God. Let's write it off. They don't know God. Let's just pray for it and not help. Yeah, praying is good. Praying does, but... Just pointing a finger and judging, they need to know God. That doesn't help anyone. See, we love Jesus. That means we listen to Jesus. And here's what Jesus says about judges. And you know, I mean, if you're a Christian, you know kind of where this is going, the, the sermon on judging, but, but let's push on this a little bit. Jesus says, judge not 
that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in... Let me remove the speck from my eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's what Jesus says about judges. Now sit in that for a minute. We've all heard that, but sit in it. We know, we own it, we're much more worried about the specks in other people's eyes than the planks that are in our own. And even with that speck, here's the judging part. We don't know how much they fought against that speck. We don't know the battle they've had against that speck. We don't know spiritually what they're going through. We think we can make the judgment on that. But here's, here's, we gotta press on this. Cause I don't, here's what I do. And we, you know, we're all Christians here. We, we know what Jesus says about this. When I first became a Christian about four and a half years ago, this kind of stuff, like Jesus said here, astonished me. Because I thought Christians were all about judging. I thought Christians were all about pointing out what's wrong with people and not wanting to help them. And then when I read things like Jesus saying about, judge not lest you be judged, whoa, I didn't get that at all. And that's me being a judge, you know, as a non-Christian, judging Christians. I realized that. But these kinds of things would, would blow me away. Because so often what we do is point out everything wrong with the world, but never looking at what's wrong with us. Looking at the speck in everyone else, but not looking at our own plank. But here's, here's the, the pressing. What's our rebuttal? This is me every time. Every time we talk about judging as Christians. There's always like this caveat on it. Yeah, it says judge not, but look at what it says right after that. Remove the plank out of your own eye, then you can remove the speck out of your brother's eye. So we kind of take that as permission to judge. And then it says later on, you know, Jesus is talking about we can inspect the fruit and judge with righteous judgment. That is true. I'm not saying that's not true. But what I'm saying is I use that as an excuse to judge. I look at those little those caveats because it's always, we never just say judge not and leave it there. It's always judge not, but here sometimes you can judge. That's, that's true. Again, I'm not saying it's not true. Jesus says it. But I use that as an excuse to judge sinfully. Oh, we have permission to judge sometimes. Go for it. See, in Matthew 15, Jesus talks about the Pharisees. Or the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, or asked Jesus why his disciples don't follow their traditions. They said, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Why don't they wash the outside of their cup before they drink? And Jesus answered them and he said, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. I'm not saying that's the same thing. What they were doing was saying, the Bible clearly said, you need to honor your father and mother. It's one of the commandments. But what the Pharisees would do is say, well, whatever money you would have given your parents, 
Just say it's a gift to God, and then you don't really have to give them money. And they were, and knowing what God had clearly said for their own tradition. Again, I'm not saying at all what Jesus said is not true, but what I'm saying is, are we using that caveat as an excuse to judge? And annulling the clear command of God to judge not, and saying, well, it's okay to judge sometimes, so there's, it's free game to judge. Again, that's what I do, and I want to press on that. Is that what you do? You take that as, as free reign to judge people. It clearly says judge not. Let's sit in that. Yeah, there is those exceptions, but it's, I always hear that attached to it. And it, to me, it just gives me an excuse to judge. So there's the judge portion, being the judge. Job responds now when Bildad judges him. He responds as the person who is being judged, which we've all been also. We've all been the judge. We've all been judged. So this is, again, a human problem. We're in this together there's some unity here in our sinfulness. And like I said, it's difficult to judge someone without condemning yourself. Because in the same way that, in the measure that we judge, it'll be measured back to you. But let's look at what Job says here, what he says about being judged. First he says it hurts. So Job 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul? And break me in pieces with words. These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. He's saying this hurts being judged. They're tormenting my soul. You are breaking me in pieces with words. You're not ashamed that you're wronging me. You're not ashamed that you're judging me. That you're coming to all these conclusions about me based on these outward things that you see. Most of the time, at least with me, this is, I'm like the number one judge. Judges are cowards. And we wouldn't tell someone to their face that we're judging them. We'll say it behind their back. But when they do say to someone's face, when we do, uh, we, we tend not to care that we're hurting them. We kind of wrap it up in these religious words. I'm just telling the truth. I'm just doing God's work to point this out. But Job here is astounded that Bildad... And his other friends don't care at all about how judgmental they're being. They don't see it. They don't care that he's actually, they're hurting him. Because he goes on now, because this doesn't help anyone. Verse 4 through 6. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Verse 4 here is very important. Dealing with the judge. If indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. He's saying if I have sinned, if I did do something for God to do all this to me, that's between me and God. I didn't ask you to be my judge. I asked you for help. He says if I have erred, if I have sinned, Know then that God has wronged me. This is between me and God. I'm just asking for your help, and your judgment isn't helping. Because it feels like no one's on your side. So that's his next point. Verse 7. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. 
He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up the road against me. They encamp all around my tent. See, Job already feels like God is not on his side. We're going to get into that in a couple weeks, that sort of feeling that God isn't on our side. He already feels that way. With what's been going on in his life, he doesn't know why this is happening, so we can empathize with Job, but would feel that way. And he already says, it feels like God isn't on my side, and it feels like now you're not on my side. No one is on my side. And this is when we're scared of being judged. I mean, this is the fear. I've heard it too many times. The people being scared, and I haven't even been a Christian for that long, people being scared of asking for help, because of fear of being judged. And I've heard it like more than I would like to hear things like mental health issues. Like I'm afraid to say I struggle with depression. I'm scared to say I'm on, I'm on antidepressants because Christians don't need that. Just, you know, turn to God and he'll bless you and everything will be all right. It just makes the loneliness even worse. That's the judge. It's like no one's on your side. How can you ask people for help when you feel the judgment there, that there, no one's there to help you. And then you feel alienated, which is what Job says next. Verse 13. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. He's saying, I'm barely alive at this point, and no one cares. Everyone has turned against me, and people who should be helping me have just become my judge. So he's feeling alienated. And then kind of the last point here about him being judged is he just pleads with him, just help me. Verse 21, have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Just help. He says it twice. The anguish. Have pity on me. Have pity on me. Begging them for help instead of judgment. And he says they're persecuting him just like God does. No one is giving him a break. They're not satisfied with his flesh. I mean, it's like an animal who has not just killed the animal, eaten the flesh, but like has to break the bones too. No one, Job has been through, his kids have died, his possessions taken away, his health is destroyed, his wife has betrayed him, no one is there for him, and nobody seems like they care. No one is satisfied with that, it's not enough, and it just keeps getting worse and worse, because all people are doing is judging him, and saying, here's what's wrong with you, here's what you got to fix, just do that, and then things will be a million times better than they were. See, it hurts. It hurts being judged. We've all judged, we've all been judged. But here's good news. You've got to have good news in this. This is the next part. Job goes up and down. Emotional roller coaster. We we can understand that for what he's been through. This next part, he says, is a definite high point for him. He sees through all this judgment. He sees through the stuff his friends are throwing at him and realizes it's not true because they are not his judge. 
No one is your judge. It's to your own master that you stand or fall. No one is your judge. That's if you're a Christian or you're non-Christian. None of these people, no people out there are your judge. Here's what Job says. This is amazing. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron ped and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute Him? Since the root of the matter, matter is found in me, Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. The spirit speaking in Job here is astounding. This is probably at least a thousand years before God the Son comes to earth and becomes the God-man Jesus. And what he talks about has to be the Spirit of God. We know this has to be inspired by the Spirit of God to be written with that foresight about who Jesus is and who that Redeemer is. See, here's the true and the righteous judge. And this is why no one who judges you is not your judge. This is why we are no one's judge because here is a true and righteous judge. And this is what Job knows that cuts through all their garbage that they're trying to tell him. Let's look at what he says about who he knows is the true and righteous judge. Verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives. See, there's two pictures with this idea of Redeemer. In the Old Testament, Redeemer usually referred to the kinsman Redeemer. This was someone who was a close male relative to you, that after, you know, the if uh, all the male relatives in your family had died, there's your kinsman Redeemer, the closest of kin, who when you were in trouble times of danger or need, the kinsman redeemer would come and and buy you out of whatever situation you're in, who would help out. We see this in the book of Ruth most clearly. So it's the close male relative who comes in times of trouble to help out. That's the picture redeemer in the Old Testament. That's who Jesus is. He becomes our brother. God becomes a man. So he can become close to us. He is fully God and fully man to be our Redeemer, that He is described as our brother, the close male relative who comes in to adopt us as part of His family. The New Testament picture of Redeemer just adds to that. The word in the New Testament for Redeemer has to do with purchasing someone out of slavery. The Redeemer is someone who would pay the price to buy someone's slavery, to buy their freedom. And we as slaves to sin, and I know I'm a slave to sin because I can't stop judging The things that I want to not do, those are the things I keep doing. See, I'm not a slave anymore, but I can see without Jesus, I'm powerless against that. And He pays that price of redemption to buy us from our slavery to sin, to become slaves of righteousness. So He's the kinsman redeemer, the close male relative to save us in our time of trouble. He's our redeemer to pay the price on our head to purchase us from slavery. And that price was His own blood shed for us on the cross. And that's what it means that I know my Redeemer lives. Because here's what happened. This is the foresight the Holy Spirit gave to Job. See, our Redeemer lives. That's very important. Yeah, He died on the cross to pay for our sin. But He lives. He rose from death in victory over sin and the grave. And He is living right now. What that means is that the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, 
is in heaven is our mediator who can stand in our place on our behalf. And he is today changing lives. He is today redeeming people. He is today forgiving people of being judges. And he is today being the only true and righteous judge. And he's merciful to us. See, our Redeemer lives. Then he goes on. I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. Again, the Holy Spirit insight he gave to Job. That my Redeemer will stand on the earth. See, if our Redeemer is God the Son, Jesus Christ, that means God leaves His heavenly throne, who's lived eternally, stands on this earth, adds to His divinity, humanity, Jesus Christ. And He stands on the earth. He's already done that. Now, Job's perspective, that had not happened yet. In ours, that has happened. God has come to the earth to pay our redemption price. But here's even the foresight. That's going to happen again. Our Redeemer is coming back, and we shall see Him on this earth. So here's how beautiful our Redeemer is. And we miss this so much. We think, like, God's given up on this world, and we just got heaven to look forward to. No, God redeems even this world. He remakes this world without the presence of sin as it should have been, the new heavens and the new earth. And we will live physically on that world. So it's much more, yeah, heaven is amazing, but it's even more than that. That God is the ultimate redeemer, redeems even this creation that is corrupted and infected with sin. He redeems that itself. And we'll live on a perfect world without the presence of sin. And we will see our redeemer standing at last on the earth physically, and we will be with him. Because that's the next point. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And to me, this is so much, yes, spiritually to see God is one thing, but in our flesh, that's our glorified body, that what we live in now is just the seed. And when Jesus comes back and we resurrect, that's like the tree or the flower, so much more beautiful than what went into the ground. We don't even know what our glorified body will be like, but it is in our flesh. Physically, we will live eternally in a glorified state where there's no corruption, not subject to decay, no sickness can enter it. And what is mortal will put on mortality. Is what it says in 1 Corinthians. In my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. It says he'll, he shall see God. Earlier he said he'll see his Redeemer. Then he said he'll see God and I'll see whoever that is on the earth. The Redeemer is God. Jesus is God. Right? So it's just pointing out, even in the Old Testament, Jesus is God. That's what it's saying. We will see Jesus, whom I shall see for myself. He is the true and righteous judge. He's the only judge we should be worried about meeting. Not the people who are assuming things about us. We definitely should not be sitting on that throne as the judge. That's his spot. He's the only one we should worry about. And what he said is he came not to judge the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. And he concludes this part with how my heart yearns within me. If this, if you just read the word of God, like I might have butchered it, preaching it. I'm, I'm really tired. I stayed up to watch the Donald Trump speech. Uh, I feel like his kid, like falling asleep up on stage. I might have butchered it because, you know, I'm really tired. But if you just read what God's word says, if your heart does not yearn within you reading this, 
You should be praying about that. This is our eternal destiny. That we will see God in the flesh, in our flesh, where there's no sin and no corruption, and He has forgiven us of all sin, of all the judgment we've made, of all the evil we've done. It's it's forgiven. We can be in His presence. And that's the worship, how my heart yearns within me. See, this changes things. We have no right to be the judge. And other people's judgment on us doesn't need to mean anything. Because he's the true judge and we'll stand before him. But here's maybe the most important part. I've been painting a very bleak picture about Christians and how we judge people. But I think, again, if we're honest, our harshest judge is ourselves. We condemn ourselves more than anyone else is going to condemn us. We are our harshest critic. We are our harshest judge. And what this says is you are not your own judge. Jesus is your Redeemer. And He has said, you are innocent. It says, who is there in Romans? Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, He was raised from the dead. We can't even sit on that throne of judgment in our own lives. That's not our place. See, in verse 28 and 29, to end this, give us this warning about being a judge. If you should say, how shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. See, there's the warning. There is a judgment. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the judge we should be worried about. But like I said, he's not, at this point, he's not here to condemn you. He's here to save you. There is a judge and it's not us. And if we don't repent of that, we'll face him as a judge. If we don't ever repent from that, we're still going to struggle and, and fail and, and sin. But we need to recognize that fact, repent from our sin, trust in the Lord Jesus for our salvation and him alone, that he is our only judge. And then we will never face his judgment, but only forgiveness and rejoicing to the glory of God forever. See, here's... Here's the ending here. You know, we've all been the judge. We've all been judged, but we are not the judge. God has given all judgment and all authority to Jesus. And what Jesus says is you're not the judge of anyone, including yourself. You don't need to condemn yourself because I forgive you. If you're not a Christian, I, I want to encourage you because I was, you know, in this place of Christians getting a lot of flack and sometimes rightly so for being judgmental. But that also means you're being a judge. And what right do you really have to do that? Jesus came to the earth not to condemn you, but to save you. And that, but that takes repentance, recognizing that He is the judge. He is Lord and Savior. He is God. Ask for forgiveness and follow Him. For us as Christians, we know who the true judge is. Our Redeemer lives. Let him be the judge. Because with him there's no condemnation. Let's pray. Now, Father, we ask you now for your forgiveness for all the times that we've been judges, all the times that we've looked at people and come to conclusions about them, that we've looked at them and come to conclusions about their relationship with you, all the times we've been unhelpful and just assigning blame to people. Please forgive us, Father, because that is not our place. You, God, are on the throne. 
You, God, are the judge. Help us to repent from that and turn from that. And to not judge. God, I pray for healing for those who are hurt from being judged. Even if it's our own selves. Even if it's us condemning ourselves, God, heal us from that pain. Help us to know that you are the only judge and in you there is no condemnation. You are not judging us because you've forgiven us and you've made us completely righteous. God, I ask if there's anyone listening who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that you would turn their hearts toward you. That you would give them the courage to turn from that and turn to you, God. And I pray that you'd help all of us to rejoice, that our hearts would yearn that within us to see you in our flesh, to see that you, Jesus, live. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.